You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. All right, thanks, Trey. Um, we are going to continue in our series in the book of Genesis. I think if you've ever seen a Bible before, you're probably familiar with where Genesis is. So just start at the beginning, and we're going to be in chapter 13. And Lord willing, we will uh, cover the entire chapter this morning. Uh, It's not a really long one, and it's kind of just one narrative story that we're going to try to learn from and see what the rest of the scriptures would teach us about it. So Genesis chapter 13, and I'll read this uh, out loud if you'd follow along, and then uh, we'll pray for some help specifically for this time here in the Word. So Genesis chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land." Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you again in prayer, seeking your help, the help of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we we realize that in ourselves, of ourselves, We have no power to understand your truth, to align our lives with it in submission, in worship, in belief. So Lord, we turn to you in dependence. And just as Trey said, Lord, that everything we're doing, including this, we sincerely offer to you as worship and as an effort to understand and walk in your truth and to make your truth known to your people and to those who may be here who may not be your people so that you would be exalted, so that you would be magnified and glorified. Help us, Lord. This is our, this is our goal. This is our passion, that you would receive honor and glory and praise through our time here in your word that we would come to not only acquire knowledge, but saving, redeeming, transforming knowledge of your truth. We need you, God. We depend on you. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, so just to kind of catch you up here, we have a guy named Abram. Abram was formerly a moon worshiper from the city of Ur, and God called him out, spoke to him directly, and told him to go from his country, his family, his father's house, to a land that he was going to show him, and this promise was made that this land would be given to him and that Abram would become a great nation. That is, from him, his offspring, a great nation would be formed. And of course, living now and not back then, we understand that to be the Jewish people. And in an even greater sense, we understand that his offspring, singular, not plural, is really speaking of Christ. And, and we see Christ as the fulfillment of this promise. And that's how Abram became a blessing to all the families of the earth as God promised. That is, every nation, every people group, every ethno-linguistic group would be represented around the throne of Christ because of Christ and his work. So Abram went in obedience and, and when he arrived in this promised land that we just referred to as Canaan, uh, there was, after some time, a great famine, and Abram, uh, trying to escape the famine and save his life and his family's life and all those who were with him, took everything he owned and went to Egypt, because Egypt was always, even as chapter 13 says, well-watered. It was always a fertile place. And so anytime there was famine anywhere in that Middle Eastern part of the world, people would flock to Egypt for rescue from the famine. And so Abram did the same thing. But when he got there, he had kind of a twisted idea of how he could preserve his life and his family's life by lying to the Egyptian people and saying that Sarai was his sister, not his wife. This, of course, is not pleasing to the Lord, and Abram was disciplined by this. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, not just some dude, but Pharaoh himself saw Sarai's beauty and said, this sister of Abram needs to be my wife, so there's no problem. She's not married. I'll take her as my wife, and he did so. And while she was living in Pharaoh's household, just great plagues came upon Pharaoh and his house, and he realized something was wrong when Sarai was the only healthy person. So he found out that Sarai was actually Abram's wife. He calls Abram to himself. He says, why have you done this to me? Why would you lie? Look at this thing that has come upon my house. Now take your wife and go. And Pharaoh gave him a bunch of stuff, camels and donkeys and riches, sent him on his way. And now Abram has gone up from Egypt with his wife and all that he had, lot with him into the Negev. That is, he's returning back to the place where God had sent him. So this catches us up to this place here in chapter 13. But looking back at, 12, at uh, sorry, chapter 12, verse 10, I want to point your attention to it, and there's a particular word. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine, the famine was very severe in the land. Severe. Hold on to that word. Now look at chapter 13, verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold. So there was a severe famine, and now Abram has, uh, of, he is very rich in these things. So what's interesting is the way this is translated, there's actually one common word that talks about the extremity of both the famine and of the wealth. The famine that he was escaping and the wealth that he ended up walking into when he returned from Egypt. And that Hebrew word is similar and it, it, it talks about the greatness of it. He was very rich in livestock and the, the famine was very severe and the word literally means heavy. It means heavy. So there was this heaviness upon the land and famine, and then there's this heaviness of wealth upon Abram and his family. And this is not unintentional that this word would be used in 12 and in 13, talking about two very different situations. This is something that happens in Hebrew literature where your mind is thrown back to a concept before because the writer wants you to remember something that happened and he wants you to compare it to what's happening now. 
It's a literary device that is used in a lot of literature and in ancient literature and by Moses it was used very often. So why then, what is it that Moses, carried along by the Holy Spirit, is trying to get us to remember as we're hearing of Abram's great wealth, of the heaviness of his wealth, Moses wants us to remember the journey that Abram took to arrive at this place and that journey was not pretty. So here we are in chapter 13, wow, things are going really well for Abram, but we remember it was not always this way. We can't isolate this passage and think of Abram as just this perpetually blessed, holy person who's walking in God's will. There was a time not too long before when there was a different kind of heaviness. There was struggle, there was famine, there was hunger, there was poverty, There was dependence, and there was sin. There was unrighteousness. But here Abram has repented, and the Lord has redirected him back to the very place where it began. He's come back to that place, even to the very same spot where at first he had built an altar and worshipped the Lord. So you can see here in the passage, we're not trying to forget everything that Abram's been through, but in full view of his sin and failure and weakness, we're seeing God lead him back to this place of blessing, this place of rest, this place of walking with God in righteousness. So I'm pointing that out to you because Moses points that out to you to help us read about Abram's current success without forgetting his former weaknesses and failures. So once again, we're presented with the honesty of the scriptures. I want to point that out to you this morning, the honesty of the scriptures. That Abram, who's a hero of our faith, in that Hebrews passage where it lists this kind of hall of fame of biblical figures, and then it says, since then we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, Let us persevere. Abram was mentioned there as part of that cloud, that great cloud of faithful people who had gone before us. But we're not supposed to forget all of his failures. This is the Bible, always honest. And this is particularly poignant for me this morning because I just came back from the Middle East and and a country which is Islamic, and and I learned more about Islam in that week of being there and staying with a family there, uh, some missionaries that we support who you can see on the back wall, Drew and Jordan and their girls. I learned more about Islam in that week than I had studying it, reading about it in my entire life. And the two main things that stuck out to me were the satanic nature of it, the deception of it, and the twisted unholiness of it, and also the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy, because it's a legalistic system, and it's meant to be an outward expression of your devotion to Allah, but it has nothing to do with, this, with what's actually happening in your heart. It's not about love. It's not about compassion or grace because Allah does not represent those things. He's merely about outward justice and conformity. And so that's what you're about, outward justice and conformity. Whatever's happening in your heart is almost irrelevant. So weakness and failure is always hidden. It's always glossed over. It's always omitted from the history. Take for for existence Muhammad who wrote the Quran. There's never any mention of any humanness, any weakness, any failure. It's blasphemy to mention even such a thing. So it creates a system of fear. That you're always trying to live up to some impossible standard. And so you have to create loopholes that account for your weakness and failure. So the hypocrisy comes into play. You know you're not perfect, so you try to legitimize and justify your imperfections. Well, that's not one of the rules. I can be like that. It's a gray area, but it's allowed for. But here we are in the Bible with the true and living God saying failure is part of the story. Weakness and dependence and need is part of the story. That's how we come to know God and his grace and holiness and awesomeness and power. 
and to be satisfied with him, knowing he's better than us, greater than us, other than us. He is holy. He is just. He's righteous and good and gracious in his being, and we're just not. So we look to him to be forgiving, to be gracious, to be patient. Islam knows nothing of this. Because weakness and failure and sin is not something we talk about and deal with. It's something we just try to overcome in ourselves. Isn't our God great in his honesty? And that he would be willing to welcome us into that honesty and show us the greatest among us is greatly dependent on God and his mercy. The honesty of the scriptures before us. So he's not hiding the weaknesses or failures of Abram, and he's not hiding ours. He's willing to allow us to identify with Abram, to follow him on his journey, and we can find ourselves in Abram much more than we find ourselves relating to God and his godness. We can relate to, God, to Abram in his weakness and dependent spirit towards God. There's something that I want to point out here in this passage. Um, Actually, let me rephrase that. There's something I want to point out that doesn't exist in this passage. Because there's kind of two fronts, there's two battle lines that we're always fighting on when it comes to proclaiming God's word. There are the things that God's word says, and there are the things that God's word doesn't say. And particularly in our city, in, in Houston, where we have such a blight on our church culture that is the prosperity gospel. We have the largest church in the country, uh, Lakewood Church, a.k.a. Osteen's Basilica, the church that Joel built, which is not the church that Jesus built, built on a false doctrine, a false gospel, In a city like this, it's very important for us when you have literally tens of thousands of people filling up places where they're being told false doctrines, false gospels, false hopes, and a false kind of God, it's very important for us to recognize this is the kind of passage that they're launching their deception from. Let me point it out to you. I want to spell it out and make it easy for you to see because too often... We have false teachers with bad theology, selfish motives, isolating a text just like this, and they relate all the ugly parts, painful parts, confusing parts to your past, and then they highlight something that has to do about blessing and wealth, and they misapply it to your future. So listen how easy this is. Listen. It's so easy to preach something that has uninformed or, or uh, unknowledgeable people leaving the building, believing that God's highest purpose for them is to make them as rich and comfortable as possible. They'll use a passage like this. Listen how this might go. Right now, you might feel like Abram felt in Egypt. He's just trying to survive, but he's making a mess of it. He's looking to Pharaoh instead of looking to God, but you got to go through the famine before you can get to your feast. Your feast is coming. God's going to take you back to the promised land and he's going to increase you. The days of famine and humiliation are behind you. The days of increase are ahead of you. You're going to have to buy a bigger house to hold all of the blessings. The Lord's going to bless you so you can be a blessing. He will keep his promise to you. Woo! That'll preach, right? It'll preach. I mean, it rolls off the tongue. It's all about you and your success and your comfort. And God's all about you, you, you. Man, it's easy to get there from a passage like this, isn't it? There's just one tiny little problem with this. It's the entire Bible. (laughs) That's it. I mean, it's really... Genesis 13 or anywhere else in the scriptures, you won't find that kind of teaching. 
In fact, you'll find a much different kind of teaching. You'll, you'll find teaching that says wealth is, is not, uh, the desire to be rich, the desire to be wealthy is not some kind of diving board into blessing. It's actually a trap into sorrow. So uh, I'm pointing that out because, I, I mean, I don't imagine that a lot of you, when we read this passage out loud, you're like, well, I mean, I know what this sermon's going to be about. It's, God wants me to be rich. M- maybe you didn't think that. Maybe you did. Maybe you've heard this text preached to you before, and someone laid a stumbling block in front of you about God's centrality around you and your comfort. Probably not many of you. But in any case, I want this to be a warning to you that this passage and many others will be twisted in an attempt to sell you that message. Hoping that you'll give your money to them in exchange for sermons that tell you what your flesh desperately wants to hear. That God's ultimate goal is to make much of you. When we know the Bible says God's ultimate goal is to make much of himself. Because if he does any other thing, God becomes an idolater and the entire universe crumbles in on itself. But God cannot sin. He cannot be an idolater. So we know we're safe from that. But it's important for us to be aware of the devil's schemes, his false teaching. So let me just reassure you that the Bible refers to the desire of wealth as something that is a snare and a stumbling block Uh, And that's not what this passage is about. It's something different. So if we let the rest of Scripture teach us what this passage is saying, what do we end up learning? So now we've, we've done the deconstructive work of making sure we understand that what a lot of church culture tries to tell you is happening here isn't the actual goal of the Scriptures. Now let's construct what the Lord is really doing here. In this moment... Abram standing with Lot there in the promised land, returned. He's gone through a lot of difficult things. He's fallen. He's experienced the grace and deliverance of God. And now here he is back at the place where he's supposed to be with his family. And he's with Lot, his nephew. They're standing there, both of them with great possessions, which again has caused problems. They both have so many possessions that they're starting to crowd each other. Even in a great land, there's not enough space for both of them. And as Abram and Lot stand there looking over the land, there's a moment we have where Abram does something honestly pretty unexpected. He throws a bit of a curveball at Lot. We haven't had a lot of Uh, mention of Lot here because he hasn't played much of a role. He's just been kind of following Abram. Later on, we'll see uh, Lot's um, life unfolding. We'll see his character. Peter refers to Lot as a righteous man. We're just taking his word for it because you don't have a lot of great description about Lot. He tends to seem to be a pretty weak person, but he must have been a person who trusted God. Here we are, Abram and Lot standing there looking over the land, a crisis. There's not really room for both of them to dwell in the same area. So Abram said to Lot, verse 8, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family. The, The word there literally means brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. End quote. You see that? You take this part, I'll go there. You take that part, I'll go over there. End quote. He doesn't put a bunch of qualifiers and guiding statements on it. I mean, like, don't go crazy. I mean, you know me and my family have to survive. He doesn't say anything like that. It's, it's not like, hey, look, here's the good part of the land. Let's, div- let's make the dividing line so we each at least get half of the Jordan Valley. Nothing, but I mean, it's up to you, bro. I mean, it's whatever you want. Nothing. Just you go here, I'll go there. You go there, I'll go here, end quote. What's he doing? Keep in mind, this is the promised land. Promised to who? Promised to Abram. What's he doing? 
He's willing to just give away a massive chunk, up half of it or more than half. You go this way, I'll go that way. This is the promised land. What's he doing? Here's what he's doing. He's being godly. He's being gracious. He's being open-handed. Something that's supposed to belong to him and be his possession, he's holding with an open hand towards Lot. So he's being gracious. He's also being Fearless, fearless. He's not afraid of Lot's decision. He does, I'm sure he didn't have it in his mind that Lot was definitely going to give him the good part. You ever offer something to someone knowing that they're not really going to accept it, but then you get credit for offering even though you're going to keep it? Like you already know somebody's not going to be in town at the right time, but you're like, hey, if you come in town, just stay with me. Oh man, I would. Like, oh, you would. I know you would have, and I would have been so happy. <clears throat> Anytime a situation like that happens, uh, my dad is always like, Grana, because his mom would always say, the best scenario is when you offer it, but they don't accept. You get credit for offering, but you didn't have to do anything. She was a really faithful lady. She was just really funny. But that's not what Abram's doing here. It's just end quote. He he's actually did offer him anything that he wanted in the land. Whichever way you go, I'll go the opposite way. So what does Lot do? Of course he does what is natural to do. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. That is like Eden. Moses is reminding us of chapter one, this lush, cool garden that's well watered, full of fruit. Like the land of Egypt, where they had just come from. Lot's like, man, when this joint dried up, we ran to Egypt. That spot looks like Egypt. I want that spot. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Moses doesn't tell us here in his description whether or not Lot understood that they were great sinners against the Lord. So we don't want to accuse Lot of knowing that and not caring. But in either case, he's getting himself into trouble by making the selfish move. Now I want to stop here because Abram is an example for us. And we want to recognize that. Abram was, was doing two things here. He was trusting God's sovereign word to him. And he was being humble towards Lot. So he was trusting God's sovereign word and he was being humble. So in this moment where we see Abram doing these two very godly, very gracious things, what we want to do is not, we want to see how Abram exemplified these characteristics, but we don't want to just end with Abram because Abram is not the highest example of holiness and godliness, is he? We know who is. It's Jesus. So we're going to look and see how Abram exemplified these things, but we're going to exalt the example to the one that Abram was actually exemplifying. The one that Abram's life is pointing to. He's just a shadow of something greater that was to come. And so let's look toward the greater thing, the way the scriptures always do. Always pointing us towards the Lord Jesus. We want to do the same thing. So we'll take these two things, these things that we see in Abram, his trust in God's sovereign word and his humility, and we'll pay attention to how Abram did this and then how that actually is more fulfilled in Christ. So... Pay attention to verse 23 here. Look at verse 23. Oh, sorry, uh, that was in a different passage. Uh, his trust in God's sovereign word. Yeah, sorry. So his commitment to righteousness, to godly grace, created a situation where only two outcomes were possible. When he said, take part of the land, I'll take the other part. He was doing a righteous thing, a godly thing, because it was gracious, it was humble. It was open-handed. It created a situation only two outcomes were possible. These are the two outcomes. A total miracle or a total disaster. 
a total miracle. Abram, in an act of godliness, gives Lot the most fertile half of the promised land, but God still sovereignly works to accomplish his word and gives the land to Abram's offspring. That would be the miracle or a total disaster. Abram, in an act of godliness, gives Lot the most fertile half of the promised land, so God's will is frustrated and his promise fails to become a reality. What were you thinking? That would be the disaster, right? So here's the big question we need to ask ourselves. The common denominator was an act of godliness that would either be a miracle or a disaster, but that thread stays constant. It was no question, it was an act of godliness that created this situation. So the big question we need to ask ourselves is, can godliness harm us? Can godliness harm us? This depends on your definition of harm, not of godliness, your definition of harm. If harm means to cause you trouble in this world, yes, godliness can harm you. Listen, Godliness can kill you. But if harm means to derail God's will for you or to doom you, no, godliness cannot harm you. So how do you define harm? In this situation, Abram had confidence that an act of godliness would harm him in the sense that it would hurt but it didn't harm him in the sense that it was going to derail God's promise. He had confidence that that was not held by him, but held by God. So then let's look beyond Abram to Jesus as our ultimate example. I want to turn your attention to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And it'll probably be up on the screen, but if you got it in your Bible, I think that's preferable. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. So Peter here is speaking, he, he's speaking to a different groups of people within the household, and then he begins to speak to servants or slaves and teaches them about a Christian attitude in their condition of slavery. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So can you see Abram's situation here? That he wants to do something gracious, something godly, and yet it could cause him harm because the person may take advantage, Lot would take advantage and do something for himself and leave Abram stuck with the bad portion of the land. So it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that is the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And here's where I want to point your attention to verse 23. In verse 23 here, we see Jesus not reviling, not threatening, but entrusting himself to him who judges justly. An act of grace, an act of sacrifice, an act of humility, trusting in God to be his protector, his provision. He was not looking to himself. Instead, he was looking to God. So this threat that came upon Abram he realized he was in a position where he was going to have to entrust himself to God that even if he gave away a portion of this promised land, God would sovereignly work so that his promise would be fulfilled. 
In other words, an act of godliness could not harm him. But if Abram, doing this thing, is an act of faith, is an act of confidence in God's sovereign word, how much more did Jesus exemplify this by not giving away land, but giving his own life? Jesus committed an act of godliness, the most extreme kind of graciousness, giving his own life for us. And Jesus was able to give his life without fear because he entrusted himself to the Father. He knew that he would not be abandoned to the grave, so he gave himself for our sake. David, in one of his psalms, said that, that, he would lo- that God would not let his Holy One see decay. And then Peter quoted that scripture in Acts chapter 2 as he preached it, preached the gospel about the resurrection of Christ. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. He allowed himself to be murdered. He allowed himself to be buried. The stone rolled in front of the door into the deepest kind of darkness, knowing with confidence that God's sovereign word would be fulfilled even out of this darkness. Jesus is the example of confidence in God's sovereign word. So the world has a saying, and maybe you've said it before, and, and I'm not trying to you know, judge you or condemn you or something for saying this, because sometimes it feels right, but it's a worldly saying. No good deed goes unpunished. You ever said that to someone or even said it in your own mind, in your own heart, when you try to do something good for somebody, You try to do something gracious, but then they take advantage of it and they stomp you and step over you down the path that you created for them. No good deed goes unpunished. But we say, listen, brothers, sisters, we say with the Lord that in this world we will have trouble, but take heart. Christ has overcome the world. So any act of graciousness, any act of godliness, the world may punish us for it, but in God's sight, it's a gracious thing. He honors it. He appreciates it. You will not be harmed for your godliness, though you may be hurt because we live in a broken world that doesn't value godliness, but values self-exaltation. But we abandon that purpose We don't exalt ourselves, we exalt the Lord. And in so doing, we come to the second point, Abram's humility more fully fulfilled in Christ's humility. And in order to see this, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter two. If we think it was an extreme act of humility when Abram gave up his rightful place, remember God had promised this land to him, If we think him giving up his rightful place for Lot's sake was a gracious and a humble thing, compare it to Christ. Listen to Paul writing to the church in Philippi, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. He says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, in other words, if you identify with Christ at all, If you have any purpose in your heart to follow him and to be like him, then verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now here's the one mind that we should all adhere to with one accord from faith in Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That may be a very familiar passage to your mind, that you know that's the right attitude, you remember that you've been taught this, I should place the needs of others above my own needs, but in practice, do you find it easy? We find it very easy to recall, but very difficult to put into practice. Why? Because everything inside of us says, you are the most important person in this situation. 
And we'll even legitimize it with really sanctified, holy things like God's called me to do this so I can't place your needs above mine. Otherwise, I won't be able to walk in God's purposes for myself. So we think an act of selfishness will get us down the road of God's will. Don't we see here in Abram's example the complete opposite? God has purposes that he's promised to fulfill in me and yet I'm going to give myself away. But if Abram has done this, how much more has Christ done this? Keep on reading. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. How has Christ Jesus shown us this mindset? How has he exemplified it? How has he embodied this kind of humility to put others before himself? This is how. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, that is, in heaven, exalted at his rightful place, enthroned above the angels and above his creation with all authority, no one questioning his ambition to rule all of his creation for his own glory. It's a holy ambition and he possessed it completely. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We always use the word grasp as if you're reaching out to grab something, but Jesus was already holding it. He is God, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be held onto. Verse 7, but that is instead he emptied himself. Your Bible may say he made himself nothing. They're both faithful, both faithful translations. He emptied himself. He was God, but he made himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant that is a slave, being born in the likeness of men, he took on a human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, not to the point of giving away his possessions, but to the point of death and not just some kind of common death. He didn't just die of old age, which would have been a great act of humility and sacrifice that he is never dying, never experiencing pain or separation or sorrow or temptation. It would have been enough that he just came here and died of old age, a natural death, but he became obedient to the point of death, even, even, Death on a cross. The most wicked, humiliating kind of death ever devised by human hands that he would be spit on and mocked and derived and hung on wood for the world to come and scoff at. If you're the son of God, then call the angels to come and minister you and bring you down from that cross. Yet he endured, he endured the shame, endured the pain, even death on a cross. That is humility. That is open-handedness. That is confidence in God. Listen, when they said, you could come down from that cross, do you know they were right? Do you know they were right? But he stayed the course. He persevered. Verse 9. Therefore, because of this act of confidence and the sovereignty of God's word, because of this great act of humility leaving his rightful throne, becoming nothing, emptying himself, even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, Jesus, like Abram, open-handedly in a godly and gracious way, gave away what was rightly his, trusting God's sovereign word and purposes, not fearful of being abandoned to the grave, not fearful that he would see decay, but knowing the Father would raise him up by the same spirit that's alive within you and me. Raise him up to see life, to see light again, and set before him all creation, that he would be Lord, that all knees would bow, that all tongues would confess, this is the greater possession of Christ, not a promised land in the Middle East, but the universe, his, a people for his possession, called after his name. Jesus died to create this kind of space, an act of godliness and grace, Confidence in God's word, humble to the point of death. In verse 12, we see what this kind of humility, this kind of confidence in God calls us to. We see how it was fulfilled in Christ. Now look at verses 12 through 16. Therefore, my beloved, As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul speaking, he was with them, now he's away. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Count it with seriousness, with soberness, that you're following Christ in his example. 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, shining like lights in the world. As Abram stood there in that place with Lot, who was shining with God's light? Abram was. It was Lot who had the greater thing. He took the Jordan Valley. It was lush. It was green. It was fruitful. It was already inhabited with with great cities. He had the greater thing in this world. But who was shining with the light of God? With the light of Christ? It was Abram. And we know that it ended up better for Abram than it did for Lot. Because he followed God, trusted God, was humble before God, counted Lot as more significant than himself. He knew that his obedience would not end in his destruction but in a great blessing. So then, if we see this example in Abram, and we see it even greater in Christ, we can see that it's not giving away things, but it's giving away your life. That's what we're being pointed to here, directed towards here. Giving away our lives with open-handedness. Abram was immediately told by God, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, for the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. God reinstated his promise, his devotion to his word. He reminded Abram, you have done a godly thing and you will not suffer harm for it. So I want to encourage you this morning. Following Christ will result in numerous, countless situations where you will have to decide, are you going to act for the glory of God or for your own self-preservation? Look to this father of our faith, Abram. See his confidence in God's sovereign word. See his humility. See how God acted to preserve him, to uphold him, to keep his word towards him. It's not about riches and wealth and land. It's about unity with God, walking with God. But much more than that, see how Christ has done this. Set this example for us. 
If Abram is not good enough for you, fine. He's a man. He's fallible. He failed. But Christ did what Abram did to a greater, more magnificent scale. Look to Christ. See him laying his life down. If he can lay his life down for scum like us, to redeem us from our sins, to lift us up from the mud and the mire and set us upon a rock, if we can see Christ doing this for us, can we not, from faith in him, joyfully, by the power of his own spirit working in us to will and to live according to God's will, can we not just sign up? Just sign up for every hardship, every trial, every bit of suffering, every ounce of pain and trial that we would suffer because we were godly. It's so worth it. It's so worth it to be godly and suffer over being ungodly, selfish, and avoiding some suffering. The suffering is so much more worth it. Just as we see in Abram, the Lord fulfilled his word and he blessed him. We see in Christ, the Lord fulfilled his word. Jesus was blessed. The promise was kept. There is no promise in scripture that God has made to you that he will not keep. Not because of your sin, not because of your godliness. There is nothing we can do to either outsmart or outsin God's purposes for us, to keep us, to love us, to uphold us, to bless us with his kinds of blessings. Again, I'm not talking about money, I'm not talking about comfort. Those things are all gonna burn. Things that are eternal. God will give you the things he's promised to you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. There is no law against these things and they are yours in Christ. They're your possession. You have Christ himself. You have his spirit. Better than anything you could gain. Better than anything you could gain that this world has to offer. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.